let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in ignorance and darkness, but have given us the light of your word. And we pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will teach us your word, move our hearts to believe it, and bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit. For Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, I'm probably going to stand for a few moments, if this is okay, and then perhaps <laughs> we'll see how we go. Okay. Any doctors here? Free consultation? No, never mind. Okay. Uh, you meet someone who's broken-hearted. You will, if you haven't. You meet someone who is anxious. You will. Guilty. Yes. Dying. Oh, yes. Ashamed. Certainly. And you could lead them to 1 Corinthians 3 as you minister, because your ministry is the ministry of the word, of course. You could lead them to the end of uh, chapter 3, and perhaps to verses uh, 21 to 23, you could lead them there, and uh, you could say to them uh, that uh, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Yes, a very apt uh, passage for those who suffer thus. But Paul didn't write it to people like that. He wrote it to the Corinthians. Strike. They weren't broken-hearted. They weren't anxious, guilty, or ashamed. On the contrary, they were quarrel amongst themselves. Something new had happened to them. It was so exciting. They were alive with excitement. They were full of questions. They were pushing each other around. It seems possible even that they had gathered a bit of attention around the place and people were looking at them. They were somebodies. And he says these words to them. You are Christ's. Christ is God's. All things are yours. How come? How come he ministered to them with those words? To answer that, we look at two things. Who were the Corinthians and then who were their ministers, their preachers? First, who were the Corinthians? Four things about them. They were nobodies. They were nobodies. Read chapter 1, uh, and they'd become somebodies. <laughs> somebodies. Uh, somebodies through the attention and through connection with these big men, these powerful preachers, these rhetoricians that had come amongst them, particularly Apollos, I guess, but there's talk of Kephas, there's talk of Paul, and Paul really uh, puts himself down, of course, but judging by his letters, he knew how to speak. He knew, and indeed he did miracles amongst them, as he confesses in 2 Corinthians. And so they were controversialists, they'd caused a storm when they brought the gospel there, and now these people were associated with them, who had got so much attention. They were nobodies, but now they'd become somebodies. Furthermore, they had been gifted. They had these spiritual gifts, especially we gather speaking in tongues and knowledge, special knowledge, special insight, special wisdom, and they were so excited that as they met, they were able to exercise these gifts and dazzle the outsider, even if the outsider couldn't understand what was going on, as well as 
boasting amongst themselves about their own special grasp of the gifts. They were nobodies who had become somebodies. Second, they were guilty of a thousand faults. They didn't know it. They didn't confess it. They had no general confession clearly for them. But they were divisive. They were quarrelling. They were tribal. Uh, they had parties claiming, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, uh, I am of Peter. And as the letter continues, we've only just introduced the letter, but we know what Paul knows. As the letter goes on, it gets worse and worse. We see them indulging awful immorality. We see them uh, going to court with each other. We see them improving the resurrection by thinking it through more and getting rid of the body element, which wasn't so popular in those days. We see them exploiting their gifts to boast against each other. We see them despising the poor in their midst, and, and we could go on. They were awful, frankly. And as the letter continues, it just gets worse and worse. And so they were guilty of a thousand faults. Thirdly, uh, they were proud of their own wisdom. <laughs> wisdom was a special word in those days, and uh, to be wise and to be regarded as wise was really something you boasted in your wisdom. And so, yes, I read 21, but I only read 21b, didn't I? Because the whole of 21 gives a reminder of who they were, uh, and he says, and indeed the context of 21 gives the reminder of who they were. He says... Uh, uh, in going from verse 18, don't deceive yourselves. If any think they're wise, by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. And he goes on, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. What? They were proud of their wisdom. They were proud of their wisdom especially exhibited by the worship of human leaders, all for the wrong reason. And the word boasting occurs. We don't use boasting quite as often. We use it as boasting of being conceited, something like this. But boasting is a stronger word. It really means your identity. With, it means what you boast in. And for them, they were boasting in their identity with, their relationship with. They were disciples boasting of their master. Paul, I'm of Paul. No, I'm of Apollos. He was better than Paul, etc., etc. They were boasting in the charisma of their leaders in order to validate themselves, of course. It was ego-driven. I am of. Boasting is not a word we use much. It means putting your trust in. It means associating with you boast, perhaps, of your family. <laughs> my, my grandmother used to no, my great-aunt used to boast of her family. She'd say, we're descended from the bishop of such-and-such. And she'd give this great... As if it matters who you're descended from. We're all descended from Adam. Uh, we know that. That's their family. Boasting in achievements like degrees, university degrees. There's nothing like it, is there? University tricks you by decking you out in these wonderful things or even giving you titles like doctor. I don't think people would bother with PhDs if you weren't able to call yourself doctor <laughs> afterwards. 
I have to say, the only place I call myself doctor is on the Qantas when I'm flying with Qantas. <laughs> you see, they treat you with this sort of respect, you know, oh, doctor. Except when they call me in when uh, someone's sick. <laughs> so, yes, I can pray. Okay. Uh, you boast in your achievements. You boast in your family. You boast in your profession. You boast in your connections. You boast in your influence. This is your wisdom. You boast in your college. You boast in your diocese. You boast in your fellowship. Who you know, instead of boasting in the one thing you ought to boast in. He says at the end of chapter uh, 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And it really means trust in, put your dependency in, give yourself utterly to, instead of humans, instead of degrees, give yourself to the Lord and boast in the Lord. And fourthly, they were childish adults. That's nothing better. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 4 begins with those famous description of them. I gave you milk, not solid food. You were... You, you weren't ready for it, but now you're still not ready. You're worldly, you're jealous, you quarrel amongst yourselves. You're acting like mere humans. Mere humans, he says. They are childish adults. They look grown up, but inside themselves they're nothing but kids, and that's how they behave. Contrast the real wisdom, as he's already told them in chapter 1, and as I know uh, you've heard about the true wisdom is the wisdom of the cross and the wisdom of the gospel. The wisdom of the cross in which by something despised by men everywhere, the cross, and I might add despised the resurrection as well, the whole, the, the whole business of going around everywhere preaching the cross and the resurrection to people who regarded the whole thing as absolute nonsense must have been something. No wonder Paul declared himself as scum a little later on that's how he was treated so this is where wisdom is to be found he says mm. and true wisdom he says in chapter 2 is the knowledge that when the gospel came to you it was the spirit of God who opened your eyes it wasn't that you were clever smart good intelligent and oh I saw it no one else saw it I'm so clever you received the gospel simply because God opened your eyes the light went on and you saw the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It was a God-given thing that you became a Christian. Chapter 2. So why boast? Well, you boast only in the Lord, not human effort. So how on earth could he say to them, you have all things? How could he say things? All things are yours. After all, I'm asking the question, who were the Corinthians? And I'll tell you who they were. According to the passages around about here, they were saints. They were chosen. They were justified. They were sanctified. Together they are God's building, God's field. Together they are the temple of the Lord. You have all things, he says. The contrast is extraordinary. Perhaps a clue can be found as we turn now to who were the preachers. And particularly chapter 3, verses 5 to 15. Did they glory in their adulation? Did they love the fight going on in their name? 
no way these four things about the preachers. First, we need to observe the context, namely the Corinthian church, and to remind ourselves that the Corinthian heart, which I've described, is still with us. One of the wonderful things uh, about the New Testament is the opportunity to say these were the glory days. These were the days when everything was wonderful and uh, any church subsequently is a letdown was missed. The church described in the New Testament was awful. You wouldn't have wanted to belong to it. You would have gone down the road to another church, particularly the Corinthians. They were shockers. Isn't that a blessing from God? Isn't it great to know there has been no golden days when the church has been wonderful? Because the church is always made up of sinners. Thank you very much. At least two or three people knew the answer to that question. <laughs> the fierce loyalty to celebrity preachers, the great ones, adulating people, making them really important, giving them titles and offices and special clothes to wear, boasting the display of spiritual gift, even the hatred of other people is in your honour because, after all, you made them hate you for good reason. The tolerance of sin, the lack of love in this church, but it's you we're talking about and me. For whatever church you belong to, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of lack of love. We're all guilty, if not of these things, and of other things as well. We're all guilty of a constant judging and criticising others. Sexual immorality may be found in our churches and indeed by the leadership of our churches. God forbid, but it's true. Sins of the tongue, lying, slander. Don't look at the Corinthians with disdain, will you? For all our churches and not what they ought to be. Now, in the context of that, first, that's the first point, the context, the truth of ministry, the true nature of ministry. First, it is active. That is to say, they get on with it. He says, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, Who is Apollos, who is Paul, only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned each to his task. In other words, it's not that God opens the eyes and sets forth his gospel by angels sent from heaven. These things normally are received by us by other human beings, fallible human beings, sinful human beings, are given the task, and it may well be that you will be given the task of preaching the gospel. And you will do so with all your strength you will do so with careful preparation. You will do so with determination. You will do so by putting your whole energy into the task that God has given you. And that is right. That is how the apostle describes how he and Apollos went on. Uh, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, he says. We did this work 100%. Their faith in God depended upon other human beings 100%. And these other human beings were totally active, but they were utterly dependent as well. <laughs> I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. It is only, if any fruit comes from your ministry, it is only because the Lord has done it. 
It is a, a great thing that in, in the course of history we have seen wonderful things done by people who are not very good speakers, who are not very charismatic in their personalities. Because it is the Lord who takes his word and does his great work. Take courage. But you need to be 100% dependent upon God. Only God makes ministry work. And of course then, remember that we are accountable. The one who plants, the one who waters have one purpose. They work together and they'll be rewarded according to their labor, he says. For we are co-workers in God's service. We are servants. If you wish to be a minister of the word, never forget, no matter how people smile at you and fawn on you and make you feel wonderful, oh, minister, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No matter how much they nonsense they say to you about how wonderful you are, whatever it is they're going on about, remember, you are nothing but a servant. The praise and honour and glory goes to God. One of our greatest of all preachers, John Chapman, uh, I remember listening to a sermon. Forgive me if you've heard the story before. I brought a stranger. To, I, I brought someone who didn't know him to church, who uh, didn't know much about the Lord at that point, and they heard a sermon from Chapo on Romans 6, quite a difficult passage. At the end of it, my friend turned to me and said, what a great passage. That's service. That's ministry as service. And uh, like us all, Chapo and all who preach are accountable to the Lord. And we are meant, as he tells us in the next section, to be wise, building with the right things, gold, silver, not stones, wood or hay or straw. Is this you? Are you a servant? Or are you hoping in your heart to achieve that status which has always been denied to you because mum didn't love you the way she should have or whatever because somehow you're going to be a speaker and people are going to fawn on you and make you feel good about yourself. Is that what it's about? Or is it about serving the living God? The true message of ministry, thirdly, is of course Jesus Christ and him crucified as we've been told in chapter 1. And chapter 2, Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is the saving work of grace by God alone expressed through the crucifixion of a man and the resurrection of a man. This, this ridiculous message that we have, which is the very centre of what we say. Your faith, the faith of those who listen to you, must rest upon God and his power, not on human wisdom. You want a successful ministry? Preach Christ. Preach Christ. Preach Christ who died for you. Preach Christ who was crucified and is risen from the dead. Preach Christ, the Lord of glory. For the fruit of ministry, fourthly, the fruit of ministry, even <laughs> the fruit of ministry with the Corinthians, for although he really, really has a go at them with good reason, you have to say as well that he doesn't say, and you're not Christians. Yes, they're stupid. Yes, they're kids dressed up like adults. But he doesn't say that you're lost at all. He says you are the temple of the Lord. He says you are the field, the body, 
He says, you are the body of Christ. He says, you are the chosen ones. You are the saints. Because despite their stupidity, their faith was still in Jesus Christ. Now they needed to grow. The fruit of the ministry are men and women, men and women who are wise and righteous and holy and redeemed. They have all this. Now they must grow into this. For God's gift is not simply forgiveness, though that is so precious. It is also that you have now, you have now a glory before you and a glory which is now yours. You have and you must walk towards that which you will have. You must be what you are. So, back to the original question. How can Paul possibly say to this mob of idiots, <laughs> the church just down the road from you, did you, did you recognise it? Yeah. Okay. How can he possibly say to them, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death, you'd have thought he would have said, this church is mine. People say that, don't they? Oh, in my church, in my church. Paul says, no, I belong to you. Or the world, or life, or death, or present, or the future, all are yours, he says. How come? Well, he's saying two things, and you can see them more clearly, I think, in Romans 8, if you go there and look. For what he's saying to them is, as Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for the good. That is to say, work together in making you more like Jesus. All things work together for the good, he says. All things are yours. Everything. God is sovereign over all things, and all things will, work by, by, will be taken by him and made to shape you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is your great future. You are and you are becoming. And remember that. Remember that. Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28 is another commentary on this as well, where he says about the Lord Jesus Christ, that in Adam all die, but in Christ shall all be made alive. And he says that Christ is even now the Lord of all things. He is the ruler and reign, and he is waiting. He rules over all things now, and you are in him. And remember that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when death is destroyed, then Christ will pass on the kingdom to his father and God will be all in all. That's what he's saying here. All things are yours. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And he says, and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. All things work together for good because you belong to God. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and you are safe in his hands. Now, Act on it. Be it what you are. Repent. No more foolishness. Live out the life that belongs to you. Live out who you are and who you will be. In other words, dear brothers and sisters, you live for Jesus every day, all day, always. Live for Jesus. That's who you are. That's who you will be. And one day, you will see him.
Let's pray. Now, Father God, we thank you for your great truth. We thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we thank you that sinners as we are, yet nonetheless you persevere with us. You love us. You're bringing us home to you. And we pray that we ourselves will repent, will put away the stupidity of this world and live for Jesus. And we ask this in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.